Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're talking about the ongoing crisis in Syria with Marissa Porges, a former counterterrorism policy advisor in the U.S. Departments of Defense and Treasury, and current research fellow at the International Security Program here at the Kennedy School's Belfer Center. Marissa, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Matt. So given the tentative agreement the U.S. has now hammered out with Russia, uh, do you think that the calculation that the president was making um, in you know, making these military threats, was that part of the whole work towards an agreement or was, was he just lucky? Uh, well, I think it's a good story and it would be a good way to spin the story to say that uh, the, the threat of the strike um, and moving so you know so close to actually perhaps doing the strike, that was what um, pushed Assad and pushed the Russians to push Assad towards this agreement. Um, I'm not really sure that's an accurate assessment. I just think that there was likely a lot of other things going on, probably between the Russians and the Syrians, um, with regard to getting Assad and Russians also to this this point for the agreement. Um, you know, the writing was pretty much on the wall that um, Congress would not have approved a strike. It was somewhat clear um, that that was, that was going to be the outcome. So the threat of force was uh, not really that strong a threat. I think it was part of the, part of the larger picture. Um, but I, I just think uh, part of my reason for not supporting the strike was I don't really think it had become a really credible threat anymore, a credible threat of force. Um, and so I don't think it's, it's really that likely that it was what pushed Assad to the table on this one. So it seems that uh, now it's obvious that Russia is the controlling influence in, in Syria. But that's really been the case for a long time. They have a port in Syria. Uh, they've been supplying Syria and the Assad regime with weapons in the civil war. Uh, what is the Russians' stake here in Syria? I mean, it seems like they're extremely involved. Why are they? Why do they care so much? You know, some some of it's historical, um, symbolic. You know, a very close relationship that that's been built since the fifties. Um, that you know has diplomatic ties, has cultural ties, um, and has commercial ties as well. You mentioned the port. Um, there's you know large investments that the uh, Russians have made in the oil and the gas exploration industry. So there's some of that. Um, there's some posturing with regard to the Russians' uh, desire to establish um, uh, st- you know, play, be a player in the regional game and be a player in the global game. That's definitely part of it as well. Um, but I think um, you know something that doesn't get talked about much is, is sort of the uh, more narrow Russian interest when it comes to the security that's uh, security interests in the region. I mean yes, part of it is that they are not they don't want the conflict in Syria to bleed outside the borders. They're happy with it ongoing in there. It's become somewhat of a proxy war for them. Um, and but if the conflict bleeds outside of Syria, if it brings instability to the region, into Central Asia, that would be a major problem for the Russians. And so I think part of it is how they're going to play the game to constrain this crisis to within the borders or the near borders. Um, and then part of it is their interest in terrorist groups that are in Syria, and um, specifically um, foreign fighters who are lining with you know al-Qaeda affiliates and al-Qaeda groups in Syria um, who are Chechen. And and I do think that it doesn't get discussed very much, but I would bet, and I don't bet very often, I would bet um, good money that this is part of the Russians' um, you know, backroom dialogues is how their, their concern for 
um, Chechen fighters who are getting um, training, getting more radicalized, getting you know ties with other extremist groups in the region, other foreign fighters from other places, um, while fighting the Syrian fight right now. And, you know, A, if they end up coming back to Russia, that's a direct threat for them. Um, Or B, if the regime does fall and groups come to power who are al-Qaeda affiliated and have access to these weapons, that also could be a threat insofar as there'll be ties with Chechen individuals, Chechen groups that could lead to increased extremism, increased violent jihad um, coming back into Russian borders itself. So I do think that's part of their calculus here. One of the reasons that the Obama administration has not been more involved in Syria from the very beginning has been the fact that the question there's always been the question of who do you support if you're not going to support the Assad regime. Uh, there seems to be a constellation of, of groups in Syria fighting against Assad and fighting against each other in some in- instances. Um, we've heard some in the U.S. Senate, such as uh, John McCain, has said we should be arming these groups, we should be uh, supporting these groups, um, and insisting that they're more moderate than we would think. Um, but then we also hear reports of groups like the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, which is an al-Qaeda-linked group. Um, what is the... Could you give us kind of a, a better picture of who these rebels are? I would... Um, I'll give you the best picture I can, which unfortunately um, for those of us on the outside looking in and and those on the inside as well, it's a very confusing, inaccurate picture right now. Um, The numbers are general guesses, estimates, um, and even how groups are affiliated with each other is still, there's really a lack of fidelity uh, when it comes to this part of the discussion, what the rebel and the opposition groups look like um, in detail. That being said, what do we know? the estimates are somewhere between eighty to 100,000 individuals who call themselves part of the opposition, part of these rebel groups, um, but that the rebel groups themselves and are numbered in the hundreds, upwards to 1,000 different groups. Um, there are subsets that have aligned in coalitions. The Syrian, um, rather, the Supreme Military Command is one such group that's pro-Western that we're trying to fight, uh, rather, trying to support. Um, and that's the group that um, Senator McCain would have likely have alluded to when he said, these are the individuals who we need to support. They're more modern. Moderate. Um, they're less interested in the sectarian violence aspect of it, and this is who we should be giving arms to and other types of, of you know, support, humanitarian aid, um, you know, food packets, things like that. Um, but in actuality, right now, the reports we're seeing from the field, and there's an interesting one that um, Jane's has just is coming out later this week. So I encourage listeners to take a look at look at look rather look out for it. Um, I've only seen early reports on it, so I haven't yet read the whole thing. But it will actually be breaking down in a lot more fidelity some of what we're talking about right now in terms of numbers and alliances. Um, but the indications are that these more moderate groups within the rebel opposition parties are not the ones who are holding most sway now, who are the most powerful. Um, you know, there's been a big influx of foreign fighters, anywhere to, from five to 10,000 who are affiliated with al-Qaeda. Um, and there's those groups that you mentioned, ISIS or ISIL, depending on, you know, what you're reading and who you're talking to, and also al-Nusra. And those are two groups that are affiliated with al-Qaeda, um, either directly or indirectly, but they're definitely receiving some element of support, either in weapons or funding or fighters from um, al-Qaeda-linked groups. Um, and they have a very um, extremist jihadi bent. And they're the ones who are um, inc- getting most support, most funding, and winning the day amongst the fighter, the fighting 
the fighters rather um, these days. And the numbers are saying, you know, again, the, the recent estimates, 30 to 35,000. And now some of those are also include elements of the SIF, elements of other Syrian rebel groups who have a more um, Islamist or jihadi bent to them. And, and so the number, again, is it's it's confusing when you're trying to break it down specifically. But I guess the real story here is um, the parties that are most powerful right now amongst the rebels are not the parties we necessarily want to support. And also, let's be clear that it's a, a very dynamic picture. Um, yes, these groups are in competition for weapons and money and resources, but they're also working together. And so you hear reports from the field of, you know, a, a rally for supporters where an SMC um, commander, who is somebody who we consider would be pro-Western, hands a microphone to an ISIS individual and gives him the platform to so they're both speaking on the same stage. And I think, you know, in their minds, they're all against Assad. Yes, they have different bents, and some of them have a more nationalistic aim, some are more global, some are more sectarian or not. Um, you know, so when we're trying to break it down, they may not be seeing it the same way, and they may be shifting alliances along the way. So it's a real question mark as to who we're giving weapons to um, and to what end, and really where do their loyalties lie. So um, that that actually, you said who we're giving weapons to. Uh, there was a report in the last week or two about the CIA potentially arming some of these mm-hmm. rebels, uh, you know, under, under the table, as it were, uh, which kind of brings to mind in the public view the whole Charlie Wilson's war uh-huh. idea about um, when we armed the Mujahideen in 1980s Afghanistan to fight against the Russians. Um, that obviously uh, blew back in our face a little bit and over time. Um, Mujahideen morphed into al-Qaeda, and of course, we saw what happened. Uh, is there some danger that that kind of action could you know, have the same effect for us now? Or is there a real solid logic behind you know, joining against the Assad regime and, and you know, giving the rebels some, some leg up? Well, I think that is one of the major fears or major concerns with this approach. Um, and let's be clear, I, you know, it's, there's only bad options at this point. Um, and so we're choosing from, a, you know, what is the least bad of the bad options. And from the policy perspective, as a former policymaker, I think there is, you know, this desire, this need to do something, to not just sit back and do nothing at this point. Um, but I do think, you know, that we can't ignore that concern that in a decade's time we'll look back and say, huh, was it really such a good idea to give weapons, which we're doing right now. Reports have said that um, the CIA in the past couple of weeks, within the last month, has started to um, transfer um, small arms, light uh, light weaponry, um, some either directly or through third parties to vetted members of the rebel, um, rebel groups. Um, this could also include anti-tech anti excuse me anti tank weapons like um, RPGs and the like. Um, interestingly to note though, the um, general in charge of this the main rebel group that we support um, has come out to reporters and said he hasn't received weapons from the Americans and so it's unclear who they think they're getting weapons from. But and, and the reason why I bring that up is it sort of raises questions about what are our aims. And I think that's the lesson to get out of Afghanistan. The lesson is no A, um, we don't know where it's gonna lead, so we should be careful going in. Um, and two, we have to really be clear about our intentions. Um, you know, is our intention here to topple the Assad regime? I don't think it is. I think we've moved away from that. But I think we have to really come out and make it clear that no, that is not our intention. 
or it is perhaps, but you know, I don't think that should be. You know, is our intention otherwise perhaps to, you know, um, even the playing field between the rebels and the regime such that Assad will come to the table for a political settlement? I think that's probably the direction we're going, but I think we need to make that, that clear when we're going in. And that's for two reasons. One, um, because then we can, if we are going down the path of arming the weapon, arming the rebels, we can draw our own lines in the sand for when it ends. What is our mission? What is our intention? And when is enough enough? And so we don't get drawn into the fight further to say, which is you know what we saw happen in Afghanistan over time, to the point of maybe we're doing no-fly zones. Maybe we end up, you know, and, and down the line, I mean, no, the, the president has said we're not putting boots on the ground. But at some point over time, if you don't clearly state what your mission is and constrain it, make it a very limited mission, then it can expand and and you just you don't know where these things go sometimes. So I think that's the lesson we need to take from our experience in Afghanistan, um, you know, and also to take a you know a really hard look as to whether whether this is the path to go down. And uh, you know I'm not sure it is because I think maybe a year ago when things were different on the ground and there was a different balance of power between the more moderate rebel groups and the Al Qaeda affiliated ones. Um, there would be hope that if we gave one subset weapons, it won't necessarily go right to those who are directly our enemies. Um, that's not so clear anymore. So it, it does raise questions as to who we're giving weapons to and why. Well, Marissa Porges, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Great to be here, Matt. Thanks. You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu slash policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. Policycast.